The 17th century minister and Scottish politician, Andrew Fletcher, said this. Let me know who writes a nation's songs, and I care not who makes their laws. What he's saying is that the song a nation sings about itself says more about itself, its sense of identity, than its laws do. And in the Psalms, the songs not only of Israel then, but of God's spiritual nation, the church now, we see songs that reflect every facet of our walk with God. Some of these psalms we've looked at in this series have shown us that part of the confidence that we have in our God is that we can express to him our deepest angers and fears and frustrations and griefs, and that's as important as anything else. But Psalm 16, on the other hand, is a rejoicing psalm that's able to joy in God and in his people, in his inheritance and counsel, in his righteousness above our own, and finally to glimpse eternal security through the resurrection of Christ, the fact that guarantees and informs all the others. And so the first four verses then center on the greatness of God and of his people. After the initial plea for safety, David confidently declares that he takes refuge in God. Once again, we don't know if this is a time of physical danger for David, but as verse 10 glimpses Christ's resurrection, we also need to be thinking about the eternal refuge and salvation that God has given all of us. The message version puts this verse, I run to you for dear life, and that refuge from sin, from lack of meaning, from eternal separation from God is what he's given to all of us. And that's why David can say in verse 2, aside from you, I have no good thing. And in verse 8, I keep my eyes always on the Lord, or as it's sometimes put, I have set the Lord always before me. He's not saying that there aren't good things in life to be enjoyed and achieved or that he's this superman who always manages to be godly in a way that we mere 20th century mortals aren't. He's just as fallible as you and I and he definitely knows it. But he's acknowledging that nothing compares to God. And that because of that, because of the saviour of verse 10, who we will look at more in a bit, who will, for David, and for us now, has achieved the righteousness that he can't and we can't. We can walk in relationship with God, be strengthened by him. And so because he's looking forward here to all that Jesus will achieve and because he's seen God's power in Israel already, he celebrates God's people in verse 3. The redeemed of the Lord, the people who have accepted God's truth, who've made that truth their identity, their dignity, their self-worth. The ones who've been delivered 
from the folly of verse 4, the blundering about after false gods. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis's book in which he fictionalises one demon tempting and training another in how to tempt mankind, the senior demon Screwtape talks to his nephew, who has the lovely name of Wormwood, about the church, and he offers two very different views. And in talking about the glory of the church in Christ's eyes compared to its sometimes very human failings, he says this. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. But a half-finished, sham, gothic erection on the local building estate... And when he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him a little book containing liturgy that neither of them understands and another book of very bad hymns. And when he gets to the pew and looks around him, he sees just the selection of his neighbourhood, who he's just hitherto avoided. And so Screwtape tells his nephew, make his mind flit between the expression body of Christ really and the actual neighbours in that pew but for all screw tapes trickery the thing is that both of these views of the church are true aren't they because for all our failings and our tendency either to be or to sometimes see others as the oily grocers or the dodgy neighbours spiritually We are too part of that army spread through time and space, rooted in Christ, rooted in eternity. In mere Christianity, Lewis writes that this world is enemy-occupied territory and that the gospel is the story of the rightful king landing, calling us to redemption and to spiritual warfare on his behalf. And perhaps that's part of what David sees when he says, As for the saints, because all believers are saints, there's no special hierarchy of people who've done miracles or anything like that. They are the noble or excellent ones in whom are my delight. He's seeing God's children. Israel then, the church now. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Remember that hymn? As 1 Peter tells us, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So this is a great thing for us to rejoice in, isn't it? And to say, this is my identity. This is who I am. Not just to think, Yeah, we go to church, that's what my family does. But to know that we are God's redeemed people and that in the end, however much our culture tells us otherwise, nothing compares to that truth. Nothing compares to that eternal promise. Nothing compares to being a friend of God. But then reality bites, doesn't it? David in his life had many hardships 
Some self-inflicted, as Richard mentioned earlier, and sometimes we do have to work through the consequences of our own actions. But also many that weren't. And not many of us will get through our lives on this earth without going through something that perhaps causes us to question whether God is our refuge as much as this psalm says. A choice to do right when it costs us that doesn't work out how we hope. A choice to love someone sacrificially that's thrown back in our faith. Those who face violence for being steadfast in Christ. But we also know the times when God has been with us, helping us when we keep his word and when deviating from it has cost us. And over and above this, David knows that God is trustworthy foremostly because he knows his God. He's experienced God's help and God's presence and he knows that for all our failings, God's kingdom, God's house is where he needs to be. In glimpsing the Messiah who took our hurt and failure and frustration on the cross, he knows that God keeps his promises. And so when he says in verse 4 that those who run after other gods will suffer, it's not a vindictive threat or some kind of simplistic promise that our lives are always smooth and those of non-believers aren't because the Bible's much more honest and truthful than that and the Psalms especially. It's just a recognition that searching for ultimate truth and frustration in anything other than God, will ultimately frustrate us. The Hebrew language carries two senses here. The first is that of man after the fall in Genesis 3. Cast out from God. Sorrows multiplying. The second is a sense of bartering, of trying to bargain for peace and happiness. David can see that this is ultimately futile and that's why he says that he will not pour out libations to any of these gods. A libation was an offering of wine or blood literally poured out to the gods onto a sacred stone. And so we may not pour out wine or blood to Moloch or Odin or whoever if you are see our clergy as a matter of urgency. But do we get what David is showing us here that In God is where our deepest sense of security and truth needs to be. We can enjoy the great things that God has given us, meaning in this world and family and friends and careers and everything else that we do, but where's our deepest security? Can we show our non-Christian friends and relations the peace and focus that God gives us? David says in verse 8 that he sets God before him so that he will not be shaken. And the next part of this psalm helps us to see what he means. And so in verses 5 to 8, he secondly goes on to develop what he's saying by praising God for two things. Firstly, that he has a great inheritance in God himself. And secondly, that God counsels him. 
When he says that God is his portion and his cup, that the boundary lines are in pleasant places and that he has a good inheritance, there's two thoughts here. Firstly, there's an image of Israel entering the promised land, having their inheritance of land allotted to them. The boundary lines marked these divisions of land for each tribe. But the Levites, the priest tribe, had no portion because God was to be their portion. And in saying that God is his portion too, David tells us that this is the richest portion of all because to have God is to have everything. But as David goes on to thank God in verses 7 and 8 for his counsel and guidance, I wonder if he's also perhaps thinking of the boundaries of God's law that he may well find hard to live up to theologically. We know that that's ultimately part of the point but that nonetheless he knows are there for his protection. When we looked at the Sermon on the Mount together earlier this year, we saw how this looks for us now. Far from easy, but to be done in Christ's strength with his grace and there to help us. In Psalm 119, another psalmist talks about loving God's law, meditating on it day and night, as David does here, asking God to open our eyes to its riches and blessings, and not just the law as it stood then, but God's wonderful deeds, and not just long ago in Bible times, but the times when we know that God has helped us, guided us through prayer, strengthened us, moved in our circumstances. So that throws us a challenge, doesn't it? To rejoice that God is our portion, to meditate on his word so that we can know it, and not just to be instructed by it, but inspired too. God's counsel isn't just about how we're to live, important as that is, but it's about knowing our Father's love and care. Life and people and circumstances and culture can knock us down so many times. Not always because of what we've done wrong, but because of anything that we may be going through, something that we may not be conforming to, whatever it may be. And sometimes when we're not in a good place, spiritually or emotionally or psychologically, We judge ourselves by the wrong standards too. But then, what does God's word tell you and I about how much God values you and loves you? Because that too is part of the confidence that runs through this whole psalm. In verse 5, David has referred to God not only as his portion, but also as his cup. One Jewish translation of this refers to this as the cup of blessing from the Passover, the cup that Jesus would later use at the Last Supper to inaugurate his new covenant for us. 
And David drinks this cup of blessing, and we drink it too. Because in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed for another cup to pass from him, but then accepted that it wouldn't. The cup of God's judgment poured out on Jesus on the cross for you and I. And so David is confident in God. God's people, God's wisdom and counsel. And finally, at the end of this psalm, that whatever happens to him, he will not be abandoned in the grave. Because in verse 10, he sees the Holy One who will not see corruption. Jesus, who will rise, now has risen from the grave. Therefore, in verse 9, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body rests secure. And in verse 11, David can see that the joy of knowing God now, great as it is, will be nothing compared to eternity. And we have, and we know, far more than he had. When Jesus died and the temple separating God and man was torn in two, when Jesus rises from the grave, when the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and Peter directly quotes this psalm to refer to Christ's resurrection, we stand on the other side of all of that. We know where all these jigsaw pieces that the psalmists and prophets saw bits of have pointed to. So what's it worth to us? Will we cling to it for dear life? Will we cherish it, build a deep relationship with it, say this is who I am, this is what gives me my self-worth? Andrew Fletcher said, if I know who writes a nation's songs, I care not who makes its laws. And so if this is our song, let's be people who rejoice in God's refuge, his fellowship, his people, his counsel. Because when we've been knocked down spiritually, emotionally, when we're dealing with sickness or bereavement or any other circumstance, when we're discouraged, we have a promise that Jesus has risen physically and spiritually, and so will we. And if this can't yet be your song, if you're still seeking, still questioning, still deciding, this is his promise to you if you'll trust in him, to be guided by him in his redeemed community, not to be abandoned in death, security and pleasures eternal. Centuries later in Corinthians, Paul would write this, now we see only as a reflection in a mirror but then we shall see face to face. We'll see Jesus face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. That's our song.